mission story. In 2009, it, four Somalian pirates seized the U.S. cargo ship, the Alabama. It was the first successful pirate seizure of a ship registered under the U.S. flag, at least in the last hundred years or so. It was reported by Captain Phillips later, and in fact, he wrote a book about it. They made a movie about it. The ship was boarded by four pirates, all between the ages of 15 and 18. They were heavily armed. The pirates captured the ship, but thanks to the work of the crew, they were unable to take control of the entire ship. But they did abduct Captain Phillips, and he was eventually taken hostage. They escorted him to a lifeboat with other pirates to be held prisoner. And they were going to try to ransom him and also use him to get even more hostages lured into the area. On Sunday, April 12th, a team of Navy Special Warfare snipers were able to get to where Captain Phillips was, shoot the people who had taken him hostage, and rescue Captain Phillips. Now, we all enjoy a good rescue story, especially when it ends well. These situations can be tense, sometimes frightening and scary, but yet intriguing. I can't imagine being in the situation of Captain Phillips wondering what would happen to my life if I was unable to be rescued. I can't imagine being one of the people tasked with a man's life trying to rescue him from this hostage situation. In our text today, we see a different type of rescue mission. Peter is captured by Herod. He most certainly is going to die. In fact, the theme of the text is going to show us that in the first several verses that Peter was expecting to die. Yet God didn't use a team of Navy special warfare snipers, but in his glorious plan, he rescued Peter from his impending doom. Now, we've seen the sovereign plan of God at work in the book of Acts. We saw it with the salvation of the Gentiles. We saw it several times when the church was persecuted. But God's plan doesn't always go like we think it will. In fact, some people will preach this text or they'll read this story and they think because it has a happy ending that everything works out for good. We know that God does work things together for good. Yes, but not every situation ends like Peter. Think about James, who we'll look at in a few moments. There was no rescue mission for him. He would die at the hand of Herod and no angel or anyone else would save him. In fact, Peter himself later would be persecuted and would be crucified upside down. So what's the point then? Does it always mean that God is going to send an angel to rescue someone? But I think what we can see from our text today is this. We can trust that God's plan will always be accomplished. We can trust that God's plan will always be accomplished. It may not be what we think it should be. It may not go in the way that we want it to go, but God's plan will always be accomplished. And that should give us more peace and more trust than any other outcome in the world. I don't always use alliteration, but I decided to take a crack at it this week. Look with me at this divine rescue mission, and we'll see four different scenes that Luke records us and how each one shows us the divine plan of God. First of all, look with me at a dire circumstance, a dire circumstance in verses one through five. Notice with me in verse one, about that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
Luke is introducing to us this man called Herod. Now, you've heard about Herod a lot. You need to understand that there's different Herods during this time. There was Herod the Great. He's the one that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. In fact, he had all the children, two and under, killed in Bethlehem. And he died when Christ was still alive, when Christ was still a child, actually. That's how Joseph knew it was safe to go back to Bethlehem and to the area. Now, there wasn't just Herod the Great. His son, Herod Antipas, ruled in Galilee and Perea. He was the one that killed John the Baptist. He was the one that tried Christ before he was crucified. He was the uncle of this Herod that we see today. And so Herod the Great was this Herod's grandpa. Herod Antipas was this Herod's uncle. So three Herods. I know it can be confusing. This is the Herod we're talking about here. And this Herod is a really interesting political figure. He was educated in Rome. He had some different family issues. His father was killed by Herod the Great when he was two years old because Herod the Great was worried about his father taking over. So this Herod didn't grow up with a father. He grew up as fatherless. He was educated in Rome, and he was classmates with a guy named Claudius. Now you might think, where have I heard the name Claudius before? Back in Acts chapter 11, Claudius is the person who becomes emperor of Rome. And that's when the famines took place, was under the reign of Claudius. So because his buddy from his learning days in school, Claudius, became emperor, this Herod actually accumulates quite a bit of power. In fact, he takes over not only Palestine, but also Galilee and Judea, all of that area. So he has quite a bit of territorial control. And this starts going to his head a little bit. Now, one of the other things you need to know about Herod, he was a notable Jew, even though some question how Jewish he actually was, but we won't get into that this morning. He had close relationships with the Pharisees. Some people think, okay, Rome and their rulers, they didn't really interact with the Pharisees, but because Herod was somewhat Jewish at least, he had a close tie to the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders. And why was that? Well, I think just because he was Jewish for one, but number two, the leadership in the area wanted the Jews on their side. We see that with Christ being put to death. And it wasn't necessarily because they were afraid of a Jewish uprising that would take over but it was known as a pretty volatile land that could have some different riots and uprisings. And Caesar did not like it when the Jewish area was under duress. And so these rulers tried to make sure they were on good terms with the Jewish leadership. And we see that with Herod as well. And I really think that's what brings us to our text this morning. That's what starts Herod on this persecution spree, if you want to call it that, of killing Christians. It says he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. We've seen the Jewish authorities starting to persecute Christians up until this point. Now we're seeing more of the general authorities, the Roman authorities, start to go after Christians. Verse 2, it says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now again, just like there's three Herods that I mentioned, there's a couple different James that we have to talk about. There's James, the brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book of James. This is not the James who was killed here. We're actually going to see him later on in the passage. This James is James, the brother of John. And he was a disciple, yes, but he's killed by the sword, which probably means he was beheaded. So this James is killed, and what does Herod notice? Look at verse 3. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. 
So I don't know if he was just trying this out to see what everybody's reaction was, but he killed James. And guess what? The Jewish authorities, the Jewish people really liked that he did this. And I think it shows us something else as well. Remember, why did they not persecute the Christians in Acts 4? Why did they not persecute them as much in Acts 5? Because the people liked the Christians. Because the Christians had a good relationship with the people. What do you think changed all that? It was Stephen and his martyr. It angered the people. There started to become more violent persecution, not only from the authorities, but from the people. And this spread the church out. So we're starting to see the Jewish people are turning in their relationship towards the Christians. And it's really not a safe place in Jerusalem for the Christians anymore. We see this not just from the Jews, but also from the authorities. So when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He said, hey, if they were happy that I killed James, wait till they see what I do to Peter. Because Peter was the leader of the church. And so they arrested Peter. But notice it says it was during the days of unleavened bread. So the Passover, the Passover feast. This was a feast in the Jewish nation. And it's important that it happened during this time. Why is that? Because they couldn't kill anyone during the Passover. So you might ask, okay, why did they just not arrest Peter, try him and kill him? And by the way, if Peter had a trial, Peter would have been killed. It was just that simple. That's how it was going to work. And so they couldn't try Peter yet because of the Passover. So this means that he's detained in this Roman prison. Now, this prison was probably the fortress of Antonia. I don't have time to say too much about it this morning, but you can look it up. It was a pretty well-guarded fortress during that time. Look at verse 4. It says, When he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, four squads of soldiers. Well, a squad was four people. So four times four is 16, if I've still got my multiplication facts right. 16 soldiers. But why does it say they had four squads? They each took turns during the night to watch Peter. Four guards would guard him. In fact, we'll see later, two of them are chained to Peter, and then two would be on the outside of the, sh- of the cell. After three hours, another squad would take over. Why did they do this? That way, no one would fall asleep when Peter was in prison at night. He always had the best protection over him. Now, why is Luke showing us this? He's going to show us how important it was and how interesting it was that Peter was rescued from prison. This wasn't an inside job. It wasn't that the guards just fell asleep and Peter was able to escape. And also, think about this. Why were they so worried about Peter? Peter's just a normal guy. Why were they so worried about him? Think back to Acts 5. What happened? The apostles were all arrested. In the middle of the night, an angel comes and lets them out. And they show up and they're preaching on the streets the next day. And so Herod's thinking, I'm not going to let this Peter guy get away. I'm going to put four squads of soldiers on him. He's going to have the maximum protection we can give to a person. And so from Peter's point of view, he doesn't know what God is planning on doing. He's trapped. It's a dire circumstance. Now notice the verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. The church was praying for Peter. I imagine if I was put in prison, I hope you guys would pray for me as well if I was about to be put to death. Now we see the church was praying for Peter, but 
do you think the church really believed that Peter was going to be rescued? And I would say no, and I'll explain that later on in the story. But I don't think they really had an expectation that Peter was going to be rescued by God. Have you ever been in a dire circumstance, a situation that you just can't see how it's going to be good? You think the worst possible thing that can happen can't happen? I went on a senior trip with my high school class to the Wild Christian Camp in North Carolina. And on Wednesday, you always go whitewater rafting. I might have told this story before. My best friend Logan was put in charge of our raft because they didn't have a guide for us. The problem was Logan had never been whitewater rafting in his life. So I don't know why they chose him to be in charge. But we had no one who had actually ever been on a whitewater raft as the person guiding us and steering the raft. We came to this waterfall, not really a waterfall, but at least a little bit of a drop. And that's where they would take your picture. So you'd all kind of put your arms up and stuff. The problem was, as we came to that waterfall, I could feel the boat starting to tip. And I remember that sense of dread that I had as I saw the boat starting to flip over And I kind of hunkered down trying to make sure I would still stay in the raft. But I just remember how terrifying it was knowing that we're all about to fall out of this raft and go into the water. And as the raft is starting to flip, that's when they took the picture. So if I can find it someday, I'll find the picture that has all of us in the raft. And it's as we're all kind of flying out of the raft. I don't think they intended for it to be that way. But I remember just that sense of dread that I had, knowing that it's coming, knowing that there's really nothing we can do about it. Maybe you've been in a dire circumstance where you know something isn't going to be okay. We all face circumstances where we feel like it's out of our control. We all have times where it feels like there's going to be this impending doom, the worst case scenario. And maybe you're like me in that. Sometimes I can get worried about something and I think what can go wrong will go wrong and it's going to be the worst possible scenario. This is how Peter and the early church feel. And the truth is, sometimes bad things do happen. I'm not going to stand here today and say that everything is going to work out perfectly. Now, I trust God. I trust his plan. I trust that he's in charge of what happens in our life. But sometimes bad things happen to good people. Look at James. Was James less good than Peter was? Did he deserve to die more than Peter did? No, he was still put to death. So why did James die? It was part of God's plan. And I think we see that clearly in this text. You might say that's not very encouraging. Sometimes you can pray and it doesn't work out like you want it to. It's a reminder of this. What's not encouraging is that it doesn't work out. What is encouraging is that God is working behind the scenes. He knows the outcome and everything is working together for his plan. Some people don't like the phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It sounds too much like the prosperity gospel. And as you know, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. But God does have a plan for each and every one of us who are his children. And guess what? It may involve suffering. It may involve things that aren't fun to go through. Peter didn't necessarily want to be in prison, right? And Peter would face more suffering in his life than he even does now. In fact, I'm sure when Peter is finally put to death, he's crucified upside down. Some accounts say that he watched his wife be put to death before he died on the cross. There's probably a point in Peter's mind where he thinks, I kind of wish I would have just gone at this point. But the point isn't that God saved Peter from suffering. It is that God has a plan for Peter's life. 
The best place for you and I to be is at the center of God's will. Whether his will involves suffering, whether his will means everything works out like we want it to. One thing to keep an eye on as we continue reading this this morning is the contrast between Peter and Herod. You might think that sounds strange. Peter was in the will of God, and we see him throughout this passage have peace. Herod is trying to take his life and his fame into his own hands, and that's only going to lead to his destruction. So ask yourself this morning, do you trust God in dire circumstances? Do you submit to his plans instead of yours? I'm sure Peter at this point is thinking, this is not where I want to be right now. But yet it is where God had for him to be. Secondly, notice with me a divine messenger. Like I said, I usually don't alliterate, but it kind of worked this week. A divine messenger. So Peter's in prison. Notice verse 6. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping. Now I don't know about you. If I'm waiting on a trial where I know I'm going to die, I don't know if sleeping would be the thing I would be doing. But I think this shows us that Peter had peace over his situation. He was sleeping. He wasn't up all night worrying about it. And while Peter is sleeping, it says he's bound between two soldiers with two chains and sentries before the door that were guarding the prison. So he's got two soldiers, like I said, right next to him. He's got two soldiers in front of him. There was no way... They were all just going to fall asleep, and Peter was going to escape. Notice verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the, sh- in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And chains fell off his hands. So we don't see this angel break into the prison like a normal rescue movie or something like that. He just appears in the cell. And the bright light wakes Peter up. And in fact, the angel kind of shoves him away. I don't think he was trying to hurt him, but I think he was trying to get him awake so that he would get up. And as Peter gets up, the chains fall off his hands. Now, the biggest question we have is, were the guards awake during this time? Were the guards asleep? If they were asleep, then it's a miracle that they were asleep to the extent that this bright light was shining so much that it woke Peter up, but the guards stayed asleep. I don't really know what happened to the guards, to be honest. I don't know if they were frozen. I don't know if the angel took care of them, but they don't seem to be an issue at all. In fact, they're not mentioned that the angel had to do something to them. So they might have just been frozen at the sight of this. Whatever happened, Peter gets up, the chains fell off. Maybe the guards didn't notice this. And he follows the angel. In verse 8, it says, the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So he's getting dressed in verse 9. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. Peter thought this was a dream. Have you ever had a situation that's so crazy? You've wondered, am I dreaming right now? Is this real? And Peter seems to think he's having a dream. He's having a vision, even though this is definitely reality. Notice verse 10, and when they had passed the first and second guards, remember the guards that were in front of them, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. Now, I don't know if this was like automatic doors before you have automatic doors like today, or if it just opened, 
But the gate just opens in front of them. And Peter's probably still thinking, oh, this is a dream. This isn't real. And they went out and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. So the angel leaves Peter. He helps him get out of prison. And when they get to the street where he's safe, the angel leaves him. And notice verse 12, when Peter came to himself, he said, what does it mean that he came to himself? It's a similar phrase to the prodigal son when he came to himself and realized how much of a mess he was in because he'd left his father he finally went back to his father and asked for forgiveness. It's not that idea. I don't know if it means that Peter woke up or he finally realized what was happening. Peter at some point realizes, though, hey, this isn't a dream. This is reality, and this is what really happened. And notice what Peter says. He says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from what all the Jewish people were expecting this divine messenger this angel of the lord rescues peter and delivers him to safety now i think verse 11 is really the key of the entire passage it's what it's trying to tell us that god rescued peter this was his plan peter didn't just escape the guards didn't just fall asleep peter didn't work with the guards and arrange some kind of deal peter escaped with the hand of of the Lord. And why is that? Because it's part of God's plan. I don't know if you're like this. I'm assuming you are. I don't like it when things don't go according to my plans. In different times in life, I've made plans for how things are going to work out. This is where I'm going to go to college. This is what job I'm going to have. This is where I'm going to live. This is what kind of house I'm going to get. And even when I was looking for a dog, I looked for you know, labs and different dogs like that. I wasn't even looking for Mac. But yet every time I make plans for my life, God changes them. And it all works according to his plan. And I realize that God's plan is much better than my own. I won't lie to you today and say that God is going to deliver you from all the pain in your life, that he's not going to put hard things into your life to experience Sometimes Christian experience the worst pain and the worst grief. In fact, some of you, even in this room, have lost people, have experienced hard circumstances, circumstances that are much harder and much more serious than I could even imagine in my life. The Christian life is not easy, yet I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. The trials in your life that feel hard, that feel like you don't have control, that are hard to work through, and they throw you up against Christ. And so we learn to appreciate them. There are times in life where you might cry out and say, God, I don't understand what is happening in this moment. And sometimes it's during those moments when you're sad, when you're grieving, when you're hurt, when it doesn't feel like it's going to get better, sometimes in those moments, you truly start to understand the heart of God. Someone put it this way, you don't really understand what the love of God is like when it feels like no one loves you. You don't really understand the peace of God until you're in situations where there's just no peace. 
You don't understand the wisdom of God until your life doesn't make sense. And you don't cry out for the justice of God until you've faced injustice. We want everything to work out in our lives according to our plans. But God doesn't say that all things work together for good exactly the way we've planned them. God says all things to work together for his good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes good in our lives and in the plan of God involves suffering. What happens to Peter here is great. Later on, he's going to face more challenges. And it's all part of God's plan for Peter's life. Why did God rescue Peter here? It's because he had more work for him to do. God sends this divine messenger to rescue Peter. And thirdly, we see a doubting congregation. A doubting congregation. The church that is waiting for Peter. Like I said, they were praying. But they don't actually believe that Peter has escaped from prison. And this, I think, is a actually funny part of the story here. Notice verse 12 with me. When he realized this, when he realized what God has done... When he realized that he wasn't sleeping, but he was awake, it says he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So we see a new character. And Luke likes to do this. He likes to tell us about a new character that's going to become important later. John Mark is someone who would follow with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. And he's going to be a really interesting figure in Acts. He would be the one who would actually write the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And they go to his mother's house. And I actually think his mother's house is where the Last Supper took place. We at least get some clues to that in the Gospel of Mark. His mother Mary was probably a widow, but she was also a very wealthy woman. She had a house large enough for the church to meet in. So they are there praying at Mary's house, the mother of Mark. And all of a sudden, they hear this knock on the gate. I don't know if this was a gate that had an opening to where she could see Peter or if it was just a door and she heard Peter's voice. But Rhoda, this slave girl, and some people say she was just a girl. I actually think she was some kind of servant in some way. She hears this knock on the door. She goes to the door and recognizes that it's Peter. Now, if that were you or me, I would want her to open the door, right? Open the door and let Peter in. Once she realizes it's Peter, she turns around and leaves him at the door. And she goes and tells everyone that Peter is alive. Now, when she goes to the rest of the church, they are there praying. Notice what she says. It says, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, what? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. But she kept insisting it was so. So I just imagine this church is praying for Peter and Rhoda comes in and she says, hey guys, Peter's at the door. And they're saying, you're crazy. We're praying for Peter right now that he would be rescued. And so they're praying for Peter to be rescued, but they actually don't believe that it's going to happen. In fact, she keeps, it says she keeps insisting that it's so. She says, no, it is Peter. It is Peter. And finally, look at what they tell her. They said, it is his angel. Now, this does not mean that we become angels when we die. Some people during this time thought 
that all of us had an angel were assigned to. And sometimes that angel would take on your appearance if you had died. So if I died and you saw the angel that was assigned to me, you would see my appearance. And I don't actually think that's how angels work. But this was a common belief during this time. And this is what they thought might have happened to Peter. But it wasn't his angel. It says Peter continued knocking. And why is Peter continuing to knock? Because she didn't let him in. And he's still at the door. I don't know if you've ever had that. I've been at somebody's house before and knocking, and knocking, and knocking, and they just can't hear me. And so I've called them on the phone. They've gone to the front door to look for me. They've gone to the back door, and I'm really in the garage door or something like that. And I can hear them say, well, I can't figure out where he is. And when you're at the door, you're like, just let me in. And I imagine Peter's getting pretty frustrated at this point while they still haven't let him in. But finally, they opened the door, and they saw him, and they were what? Amazed. They were praying for God's will to be done. They were praying that Peter would be released, but they didn't actually think it was going to happen. Now, it didn't mean it had to happen that way. It didn't mean God had to save Peter, but God answered their prayer. It says in verse 17, he motioned to them to be silent. Why do you think he did this? Number one, I think they're very excited and loud. Number two, I think Peter didn't want to go back to prison. So as these people are being loud and yelling, maybe, and they're very excited, Peter's saying, hey, guys, keep it down. I just got out of prison. I don't want to go back. So he motions them to be quiet. It says he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. So as he's telling them all these things, he recounts the story of God's deliverance in his life. And then he says, tell these things to James and the rest of the church. Now, this is where we see the other James. This is Jesus' brother, James. He's going to be an important figure in the church. It's not the James who just died. That'd be really weird if it was the James who had just been beheaded. But it's actually the other James, Jesus' brother. So he reports these things to him. Now, we see, lastly, it says, then he departed and went to another place. Now, it's an interesting question. Where did Peter go? And the answer is, I have no idea. He could have gone to Antioch to see Paul. We know he does that in Galatians 2, and Paul has to confront him for not eating with Gentiles. He could have gone to different places in Jerusalem, maybe. He could have gone into hiding. We don't know exactly where Peter went. We know he's going to come back to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to deal with this issue of circumcision But at this point, Peter leaves the scene. We see him with this doubting congregation. They could not believe the plan of God. They prayed for the release of James, maybe. And they saw James die. And they said, well, we prayed for James and James died. And so they probably thought that would happen to Peter. We as Christians can doubt God's plan sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't always turn out good. I can remember my grandma on my dad's side died of cancer. She was the sweetest lady I've ever met. She was one of those people, if it was pouring down rain outside, I'd say, well, it's raining outside. And she's like, hey, it might be raining, but it's not pouring, you know. And she's just very optimistic and bright. And she never had a bad thing to say about anyone. She was so warm. And I can remember watching cancer near the end of her life rob her of the strength and of the energy that she once had. 
and really start to cripple her into someone that I didn't even recognize because of her condition. I remember the day that she died, sitting and thinking about her in my dorm room in college and questioning the goodness of God. If God is good, how could he rob someone of so much more life who was so warm and sweet and loving? I soon remembered the book of Job, though. I remember what God said to Job. Job lost everything, his family, his livelihood, his possessions. The only person he didn't lose was his wife, who told him to curse God and die. And as he's talking to God, and he has several chapters where he's asking God why this happened, where he's arguing with his friends who say, you must have done something to sin in order for this to happen. And when he asks God why, do you remember what God says? God says, hey, Job, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I put all this into being? I don't remember you being there. Oh, yeah, you weren't born yet. You weren't even alive. And it's a good reminder of this, that none of us can fully comprehend the full plan of God. Sometimes there's things that happen that we just don't understand, that don't make sense to us. Why God allows some people to be really successful and happy and comfortable and why he causes other people to suffer. But we do know this, that God is in control, that he has a plan, that his plan is perfect, and that his plan results in our good, not just in this life, but in eternity with him. I remember thinking, why did my grandma pass away that day? Well, part of it might have been because she was in so much pain and suffering that now that she's with Jesus, she is in eternal joy. And I think if I could see her in heaven, I'd realize what a blessing it was for her to be with her Savior. We all face challenges and trials that threaten to make us doubt God's goodness. Yet we remember that his plan is wise because of his word. We remember that God is wise and that his plan is wise because the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that his plan is loving because God is love and he loves his children. We know that his plan is just because God knows justice. We know that God's plan is good because God works all things together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. We can doubt God's plan like these Christians, or we can rest like Peter in his cell, who's sleeping, knowing that regardless of what happens, he's in God's plan. So you trust God's plan in the face of suffering. Do you recognize God's attributes, his love, his kindness, his goodness, when you're facing trials? Do you doubt his will or do you trust in his plan? Finally, look with me as we've not only seen a dire circumstance, a divine messenger, and a doubting congregation, but we lastly see a disastrous downfall. Like I said at the beginning, think about how Peter and Herod compare to each other. You might think that's a weird comparison, but look at what happens to Herod. In verse 18, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. These soldiers are looking at each other. I don't know if they fell asleep. I don't know if they were frozen. I don't know if they saw it and there was nothing they could do about it. But all the soldiers are starting to talk about it because Peter is gone. 
And I would imagine Peter has quite the reputation among the Romans now. This is the second time he's escaped prison. And he doesn't really look like a guy that would be a master escape artist, if you know what I mean. And so all of these soldiers are wondering what happened to Peter. And it says in verse 19, after Herod searched, so I doubt he did it himself, but he sent his guards and other people to look all over for Peter. And he could not find him. It says he examined the sentries. Now this word examined, I don't think it was just he looked them over or questioned them. I think he tortured them and tortured them to try to see if they had helped Peter escape. And when they could not tell him where Peter was, he ordered that they should be put to death. This is why the Roman guards did not help Peter escape. Because if you lost your prisoner, you would take on his consequence. You would be put to death. So a Roman soldier would not let the prisoners escape. Not to spoil anything for later, but remember in the book of Acts, when Paul and Silas are in prison, the jailer is very disturbed when the earthquake happens. Why? He thinks they're all going to escape. And what would happen to him? He would be put to death. He would die if they escaped. So these soldiers were put to death because of this. And it says, after they were put to death, he went down from Judea to Caesarea to spend some time there. And we see this last little scene in Herod's life where he has this dispute with Tyre and Sidon. It says in verse 20, Now he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He didn't like them very much. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that they should be at peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So we don't know why he was mad at Tyre and Sidon. We know that he just hated them. And I've read that he hated them for a number of years. He just did not like them. But they needed Herod because Galilee would give them food for the country. And so they go to the king's chamberlain. Now, what's a chamberlain? It's like a chief of staff. They are in charge of the king's household. And somehow they're able to convince this chamberlain that Herod should help them. And so Herod does. And they agree on this peace agreement. Now, that actually doesn't affect too much of why Herod has this downfall. It's just the background of why he's giving this speech. Because Herod's made this agreement, he's going to give this big speech to everyone. And notice what it says. It says, On an appointed day he put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered oration to them. So he dresses up in his robes. He goes out and he gives a speech. And while he's given a speech, what happens? The people are shouting, This is the voice of a God and not a man. I can't imagine trying to give a speech and people were just shouting that at me. First of all, they wouldn't say that. But second of all, just trying to give a speech while people are interrupting Herod. And in that moment, Herod has a decision to make. He can either give God the credit. And by the way, he didn't just not give that God the credit because he was a Gentile and didn't believe in God. But he claimed to be Jewish. He claimed to know who God was. But yet they're yelling these things at Herod. And Herod in his heart takes it all in. Be very careful with people who try to puff you up, who try to make you feel really good about yourself. This leads to Herod's downfall. As they're telling this to Herod, he does nothing to contradict them. And it says what? Immediately, in verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. 
because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, I think actually God used the worms in Herod's stomach to kill Herod. That's how he struck him down. But from God's perspective, an angel of the Lord struck him down. From our perspective, he was eaten by worms. Either way, not a great way to go. Not how I would want to go is to have worms in my stomach and to be eaten by worms. Why did this happen? Because Herod was proud. Because Herod took things into his own hand. Because Herod did not give God the glory. He cared way too much about what people said about him and how they flattered him. And he took it all in. And he did not realize who God was and that he should give the glory to God. Like I said, Peter and Herod. Peter understands who God is, trusts his plan, and even in prison he can have peace. Herod takes things into his own hand. He's proud. He listens to what other people say. And God strikes him down. Notice the results of all this. In verse 24, Herod is killed, but the plan of God continues. The word of God increases and is multiplied. Herod thinks, you know what? I'm going to stop the plan of God. I'm going to kill these Christians. But the word of God continues to grow. People hear the gospel. Persecution doesn't stop the spread of the gospel. It only enhances it. It only spreads it out. When people talk about, oh, I'm afraid America is going to have persecution today, there's part of me that thinks, I hope we do, because the gospel will go out. It's what we've seen in the history of the church. And lastly, in verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service. What were they doing in Jerusalem again? Back in Acts 11, they were helping them with the famine. They were taking food and money to them. So that's why they went to Jerusalem. They were kind of there when the Saul went down. And then they're going back to Antioch. And who do they take with them? John Mark. The, pe- the person that Peter mentioned earlier. And John Mark's going to have a part to play in their first missionary journey and in the rest of the book of Acts. We see this disastrous downfall from Herod. Taking all of this in. Thinking he's really better than he is. And he's instantly killed and eaten by worms. Now, I'm not trying to say that if you don't give God credit, if you're prideful that God's going to kill you and eat, you know, you're going to be eaten by worms. I hope that's not the case. That's what happens to Herod. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the good perish. Sometimes the wicked, even here on earth, get what's coming to them. The question for us is, will we trust God? Will we rely on his plan for us? Will we make him the priority in our lives? Or will we follow our own desires? Will we go our own way? Will we be led to our own destruction? Will we follow God's authority? So this morning, how can you trust God's plan? How can you trust God's plan for your life? God has a plan. Like I said earlier, it doesn't mean you're going to live this prosperous life without suffering sometimes God's plan is hard sometimes you wonder if God is still even listening to your prayers but we as Christians can trust God's plan and we can have more joy in the Christian life than anyone else can ever experience so how can we trust God's plan remember first of all his plan of salvation God has a plan he has a plan for you and me 
but his ultimate plan, as it says in Colossians, is to bring people to himself, to reconcile people to himself, to bring the world to himself. We believe that God's going to come back, that we're going to meet him in the clouds in the rapture. He's going to come back and build a physical kingdom here on earth. God has a plan of salvation for us. It doesn't mean everyone will be saved, but it does mean that he has a plan of salvation, his ultimate plan. So we remember that. Remember that even though things may not go well in our lives sometimes, that God is still working his plan. You might think our church isn't seeing people saved. Guess what? Christ is still building his church. He's in charge of the church's growing process, not us. Secondly, acknowledge your daily dependence on him. God has a plan and he's the one that's going to accomplish it. It's not us. It's not all on us. All the pressure of getting everything done doesn't rest on our shoulders. We acknowledge our dependence on him. Sometimes things happen in our lives that show us our weakness. God will put things into your life that make you realize that you can't do it all yourself. That you're weak. That you are dependent on him. Remember his plan of salvation. Acknowledge your dependence on him. And then lastly, accept his plan as the best thing for your life. Things may not have worked out like you thought they were going to. You might start to see what God's plan for your life is and you think, this isn't what I had in mind. But God's plan is the best plan for our life. Where he leads us, we can follow and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of Peter, his trust in you. We thank you for your plan, Lord. We know that you're working your plan together for good and not for evil in our lives. It's hard sometimes. Sometimes we can grow weary. We can grow fearful and have anxiety over things, especially when they don't work out like we think they need to. God, help us to trust in you and lead us where you would have us to follow you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.